Well, Father, we do need you. We need your mercy. We need your leadership. We need your help. God, we have a tendency to blind ourselves to the truth, blind ourselves to who you are, and stumble into, into pain. So, Father, we ask that you would direct us, help us, help us to find the joy of needing you daily, surrendering to you daily, and finding you as our source of wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, God does want to help you, warn you, before things get difficult. Today we're in Amos chapter 2. It's almost like Amos chapter 2 is like a fire alarm. Now, do you have fire alarms around your house? We got all kinds of them. A couple I've taken the batteries out, a couple I forgot to replace. And I'm always reminded when it's insurance time that it gives me the requirements on how often I'm supposed to test my fire alarms. Honestly, uh, how often do you test your fire alarms? Um, maybe once a year, maybe when the battery goes out and it starts making a beeping sound, right? But you know those are important, right? The fire alarm is supposed to alert you before you're in danger, before you're burned alive, right? It alerts you to beforehand there's smoke, there's danger coming. And the book of Amos, Amos is almost like a fire alarm. He's trying to alert the people two years before the earthquake, two years before destruction comes. Guys, there's smoke. You're in danger. You need to make some changes before you get consumed by that fire that he's going to mention multiple times as he talks about the warnings for the surrounding nations. Now, I remember when I was in my 20s, Beth and I moved into our first apartment down in Atlanta. And I had this jokester um, student in my student ministry who would call me up all the time and, and try and trick me into thinking he was somebody else. So he woke me up one morning, like 6.30 in the morning, I get this phone call back when we had landlines, you know, pick up the landline. What? Who is this? Chad, Chad, are you okay? Is this Joseph? Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, is your building on fire? Is my building on fire? What are you talking about? Chad, it's all over the news. Yeah, you're up at 6.30 in the morning watching the news. Seriously, Chad, it's on the news right now that your apartment building is on fire. Right, right. So I make my way over. We get the long cord, right? You're pulling the cord along. And I look out my, my back screen window, which we had the shades down. I said, tell you what, I'm looking out the window right now. I can tell you right now I'm not on fire. So I, I turn the shades. They open. As I look out, I'm like, see? There are fire engines all over my neighborhood. Not my building, but the neighborhood right there, the building right there and right there. These two buildings are on fire, like 50 feet in that direction and 50 feet in that direction. Fire engines everywhere, and I didn't hear a bit of it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you're serious. Yes, well, I'm okay. Thanks for the call. I'll call you back. Click. I was shocked that my neighborhood could be on fire, and I didn't even know it. Slept through it. And in one sense, that's what Amos is telling the people. Guys, there are fire alarms everywhere. There are alerts everywhere. There are warnings everywhere that you're in danger. You've got to make some changes. Here's what we're going to find today in Amos 2. There's two ways to learn. <laughs> you can learn firsthand or secondhand. You can get second-degree burns when you learn firsthand from making bad decisions. Or another way is that you get uh, secondhand wisdom. 
by learning from the mistakes of others. We can learn firsthand or secondhand. One offers first degree burns, or second degree actually, and the other offers secondhand wisdom. And God wants us to learn secondhand wisdom from the mistakes other people make, rather than the second degree burns that occur when we walk down the path of foolishness. So today we're gonna look at three ways to learn in hopes that we can get connected to the heart of God who wants us to maximize our connection to him and minimize the pain that comes from those second degree burns when we go off the path and we think that nothing's going to happen. So let's get connected to the heart of God and even the discipline of God by learning three ways to learn how to follow him. So what's the first way we can learn? Well, again, God wants us to learn secondhand from other people's mistakes. Learn secondhand and you enjoy secondhand wisdom. It's so much better through the Bible to learn from other people's pain and you get the secondhand wisdom than to have to learn firsthand and get your own second degree burns. And remember, what, what he's gonna show here is that people do reap what they've sown, but God's merciful. He gives you a line, he gives you slack, he gives you time to change. And he shows you kind of where you're headed by seeing the people on the same path ahead of you are headed. See, we reap what we sow in due time is what the Bible says. And specifically, this challenge against Moab is gonna show us that God takes Imagio Deo, the way he makes everybody in his image, very, very seriously. A quick reminder where we are here in chapter one and two is that Israel's in the center and Amos' prophecy is kind of going around in a circle to the surrounding nations. Hey, he gave some warnings to Damascus and then some some warnings to to Gaza and then some warnings to Tyre and then he gave some warnings to to Edom uh, and then to Ammon and then Moab. So we're specifically gonna look at the warnings he's giving to Moab. And the hope here is that Israel can learn secondhand from the wisdom of what's happening to the people around them so they have a chance to turn to change and to turn back to God. Learn secondhand from other people's mistakes. Amos chapter two, verse one, says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now this phrase, three transgressions, even four, could mean several things. Now some people think it means seven. It's the perfect judgment. Three things and then four more, seven total. God has this against you. It might be. Some people think that the number three and four is almost saying, hey, you've done four things. I've waited for the first three, but the fourth one is what really matters. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's God saying, listen, I've given you mercy and grace, but this fourth one, I have to intervene. I can't not step in with some discipline here. It's almost like an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom. We hear this over and over, last chapter and this chapter. This idiom of, for three transgressions, even four. For three transgressions, even four, going around and around again. It's almost like God saying, it's all I can stand and I can't stand some more. You remember Popeye? That was kind of his phrase. That was like an idiom in our day. It's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. That's the idea here of three transgressions, even four. This fourth thing, I have to intervene. 
So here's what happens. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for this fourth one, I had to intervene. I will not turn away its punishment because they burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab. God says, you took the bones of the king, your enemy, and you burned it all the way down to lime. But even that, though that king was evil, he was made my image. My imagio deo, magio deo rather, was on him. And I take the image that I place on every human being, good and evil, very seriously. And because of that, you're going to have to reap what you've sown. You reaped fire by burning the bones, and therefore I'm going to send fire. In one sense, you can't play with fire and not get burned. It might be an idiom we might use today. It's kind of what God's saying. This fourth thing you've done was so horrific that I've got to step in with discipline. Now, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king and I will send a fire upon Moab. Now, this whole incident is possibly a battle mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. If you want to go look that up, you can. But some people think that was the battle that resulted in him trying to curse his enemies by burning their bones so they could never be restored in the afterlife. That was kind of the idea of the myth in those days. But God was saying, hey, those are people who really made my image. And our bodies matter what we do to them. And you did this to bring a curse on them. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Now, this does not necessarily mean that God's against cremation. I know many people who practice cremation. Cremation is a way of kind of getting us to dust quicker. Now I say to people, I'm like, you know what, whether your body's in a box or whether your body's been cremated, God is smart enough to put all your dust back together when the, uh, when the rapture comes and the dead in Christ rise first. So this was more than just the burning of the bones. This was this malicious attempt to curse his enemy. That seems to be the driver here because Christians have a very diverse thought and though many people bury their bodies in boxes, you know, caskets and such. Cremation is very much not necessarily what he's getting at here. So I don't want you to necessarily imply that what happened here is equivalent to modern day cremation. But the point mostly seems to be here that God is going to give them consequences for how they've desecrated even their enemies' bodies. And it shall devour the palaces, this fire, the fire shall devour the palaces of Kerioth, Joab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. So, one of the palaces is in Kerioth. Now, you may recognize that from one of Jesus' disciples, Judas of Iscariot. So, Judas' relatives, hundreds of years earlier, probably came from this area of town. He's saying, that area that's betrayed me, ironically, is going to suffer the consequences. Now remember, Joab's main audience is those in Bethel and Israel. He's saying, guys, learn secondhand, the secondhand wisdom of what's happening to Moab before it happens to you. God is loving discipline, but it does run out. Three transgressions, then four, and God has to say, it's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. You know, I recently heard the... Uh, I read a book by Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary, and she was born in Ireland, and she went to India. And there in India, she learned about the power of God's grace, but also God's discipline. 
She'd gone through a whole series of attempts to be obedient to God, but in India she found her calling. One day while she was having tea in India, a little girl came running to her with, with, with burns on her. This little girl had been taken by the Hindu priests. She had tried to escape once before and they had burned her hands to remind her never to escape again. But she had heard of this woman named Amy Carmichael, a white woman in India that might help her be free. This little girl, Prina, had been rejected by her own mom when she escaped. Her mom had brought her back to this temple prison. And she happened to escape the second time in all of India at the very time that Amy Carmichael happened to be in town, happened to be having tea at this little restaurant. She runs to this woman and the temple priest try and chase her down and Amy Carmichael says, no, I will not give her back to you. I'm going to take this little girl and protect her. And she did. That began the beginning of this orphanage that she created to protect little girls. Well, it's in that process that she used to take the girls on field trips. One of the field trips they took one day was to see a goldsmith. So all the girls were gathered around this goldsmith and watching the process by which you make gold. It was interesting because he kept turning up the heat and it would bubble up and then he would wipe off the impurities from the top. So Amy Carmichael, in front of all the little girls, said, how do you know when it's hot enough? And here's what the goldsmith said. He said, I keep turning up the heat until all the impurities bubble to the top and I scrape it off and I scrape it off. And I know the heat's been hot enough when all the impurities are gone. I can scrape them all off and I can see my reflection in the surface. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's the idea Amos is getting at here is that God is not turning up the heat because he hates you or he hates Moab. No, he's turning up the heat so that he can remove the impurities from us. He wants to see his reflection that we are sanctified or formed or grown back to the image of what he wants us to be. So God will turn up the heat. He will send fire, but it's not because he's against us. He's disciplining us to remove the impurities from our life. So that's our first learning. Let's look at our second. How do we learn or not have to learn firsthand and have those second degree burns, right? If you learn firsthand, it's a good way to learn. Oh, that was hot. Oh, that hurt. You can learn firsthand, but wow, you're going to have some second degree burns you live with. And God's trying to help his people learn not to do that. If you don't going to learn from Moab, you're going to have to learn your own lesson, either secondhand wisdom or second degree burns. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, now he's focused not on the surrounding nations, but he's talking to his nation, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. Guys, you have to learn your own lesson. It's going to be painful when you learn firsthand. Three transgressions, even four, I will not turn away punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord. You say you're my followers, but you despise what I say. You have not kept his commandments. You haven't. You've despised the law and you haven't kept or obeyed me. And to obey me is not to trust me. When you trust me, you obey that what I said is the best kind of life and you don't. And you know what's kept you? You know what, what path you're down? He goes on, he says, they're lies. You have started to believe lies and those lies have taken you down the wrong path. Their lies led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. 
Now the word lie here is uh, kezeb. And kezeb is not just a lie, it's almost got the idea of a, of a foreign god in there or a deceptive false god. The idea here is that there's something that's not God who's lied to you about where truth comes from, where peace comes from, where real life comes from. And that spiritual entity, that deceptive God, has led you astray and you're now worshiping it. And that could be a good thing, right? You worship your reputation and you step away from God. You worship your role as a, a, a father and mother. You want to be a good dad, right? But it becomes your God. And you lie to yourself. You begin to worship comfort or convenience. And that lie is if God's not giving me comfort and convenience, that I'm angry at God because I deserve better. See, God wants us to check these lies in our life, the little ones, before they deceive us and drift us and take us away. But the punishment is coming. And he mentions it specifically. I'm going to send fire. Again, the fire is a continued metaphor here. My discipline's coming. I'm going to send fire upon Judah, not Moab, not Gaia, not Gaza, not Ammon and all the rest. It's going to come upon you. You're going to get these secondary burns if you don't learn this lesson soon. And it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And this prediction by Amos was fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar II in 586 B.C where he did come and he did devour all of Judah because they were not trusting God to be the protector. They were trusting other gods. And God's like, all right, let's see how well your foreign gods protect you from Nebuchadnezzar. And they didn't protect very well. How about you and I? How can we learn before we learn firsthand? How can we learn before we get those second degree burns? I'll think of my fire alarm example. You know, it's the idea of I want to see the fires when they're small. I want to notice the smoke in my life before I end up in a ditch, before the whole place is on fire. Several years ago, we invited uh, Phil Vischer. He's the voice and creator of VeggieTales to come to our church. And Phil's become a good friend of mine. In fact, I text him uh, once every three or four months just recently, my uh, son Quinn, who, who uh, has autism, but he loves VeggieTales, was just you know, stemming off of watching VeggieTales. I took a picture and texted it to Phil and said, hey, your work is still making an impact in kids' lives, including my son. Well, Phil came and shared with us as a church his story. And one of the things he shared was that VeggieTales was at the top of the stack. It was the number one children's video series of all time at its peak. But he said he became arrogant and proud and he began to think he could build the company to be about him, to make himself the next Walt Disney. So he started making some incredibly unwise decisions. At the time, he says, I looked back and I didn't see them as unwise. I wanted a big movie, even if we weren't necessarily ready for it. And, and I wanted to be known for this. And so I started spending money and hiring people from Disney and this thing to kind of build this company. But I realize now that the pain I faced, eventually selling my company, going bankrupt, being humiliated, traced back to making my company no longer about God, but all about me. 
I was so amazed as he shared so openly that day at our church about the pain he experienced, the, the second degree burns of, of losing his business and, and having to sell these characters he created, Larry and Bob the tomato and, and Archibald and the rest. But he said, God used that painful process in my life where I had to learn firsthand what happens when you put yourself before God, right? Pride comes before destruction. But God taught me things and grew me and developed me in ways I couldn't have learned any other way. I, I, I should have learned it right secondhand from other people, but I had to learn it firsthand. But God was gracious that even through that, I'm becoming the best version of myself. That's what God wants for you and I. Even when we have to go through those painful lessons, we do have to get some secondary burns and our scars itch, to still recognize God is good. And he did that because he wants us to be close to him and not be drawn away with lies. But it's not just true of Judah, it's also true of Israel. He says the same thing to Israel. That's the northern portion. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel, you're gonna have to learn firsthand too. And for four, I will not turn away its punishment because you guys are selling the righteous. You're selling people for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Like just so you can have another pair of shoes, you're willing to sell off the poor. They pant after, you're just so panting after more, 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 insatiable panting, the dust of the earth, the things that don't matter which is the head of the poor. In other words, they love things, silver and sandals, the dust of the earth, and they use people to get it. God takes very seriously when we use people and love things rather than loving people and using things. Now, these passages, especially in Amos, is often used by people who feel like maybe the Bible's anti-business or anti-free enterprise. I want to get to that in just a second because this next line kind of gets at that and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go in the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down in every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned and the house of their God. So lots of terrible things going on here in Israel. But one of the mentions here is that they are laying down on their pledges. That they would, the poor only have one coat. They'd have to give their coat to work it off for the day. But they wouldn't give them their coat back. They'd be laying down like it was a, a cushion for their bed and now somebody, the poor, was going without any warmth that night because you're laying on the pledge, their coat that they gave you. So again, many people preach the book of Amos and they'll talk a lot about social justice. See, that's why the Bible's all about social justice and social justice becomes a term for you know, helping the poor and kind of condemning or shaming the, the business owner. And I have often warned that social justice as a term in our society can be very misused. In fact, it can often be a Trojan horse for socialism or for Marxism. So several years ago, I wrote a book and we did a series called Godonomics, right? And in Godonomics, I talked about how free enterprise, the free enterprise system, is actually God's idea. Capitalism or free enterprise is built on biblical concepts like private property. God supports private property. Do not steal other people's stuff. Do not envy other people's stuff. You can't be generous if you don't have your own stuff. And Marxism, socialism, communism, they have one thing in common, and it's anti-free enterprise. They are 
abolishing private property. And the Bible affirms private property. It affirms incentive. If you work, you don't eat. The, the wise man, the wise ant, considers the future because he knows his reward. So the Bible is not pro-social justice because it's often misconstrued to be a way of punishing business owners. So I wrote that book several years ago. It was really to kind of clarify some of these issues and I did a whole chapter on social justice in particular because I think the Bible is is not only not anti-capitalism, it's pro-free enterprise. However, these challenges from Amos are important to consider. I think what he's really saying Though in those days, there's horrible things going on, the sexual abuse going on, there's something horrific going on there that is not what we'd consider you know, free enterprise. But I think what it is challenging you and I to do is saying that we have a tendency to, to insulate ourselves unintentionally from the needs around us, right? Because the people we talk with are people like us who live in our neighborhoods, who vacation like us, who have cars like us. And if we're not careful, we will be insulated from the needs around us. And so what God is, I think, calling us to do as an application of Amos is to make sure you don't unintentionally insulate yourself from the needs around you. What are the things you invest in? And of the companies you invest in, how do they treat the poor? Uh, When you think about the needs in our community, do you purposely step out of your insulated life to find ways to see maybe where there might be needs God might prompt you to give to? How do we uninsulate ourselves from the needs of others? It's one of the reasons as a church we try and create opportunities, and you of course can do your own as well, but just some of the ones we have at our church that we can intentionally make sure that we're being exposed to the needs of those around us in our community. We have blue bags, for example. When you come in and out of our front door, you can see blue bags to help out with inter-parish ministries. Maybe you've gone down there and volunteered. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe this next month would be an opportunity to do that. And see if God might prompt your heart. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. I can't tell you how many people in our church have gone down to Belize or done a trip with Back to Back. By taking a week of vacation, they've just been around people who have different needs. And their hearts have broken. They've said, man, I'm so glad that I do make a good living. Because when I came across a need like that, I wouldn't have thought of this until I was there, but God's prompting me. There's people all around our church who went on a trip and prompted to adopt some girls who would have gone into a sex industry had it not been for them supporting their education. Buying a bike for someone who needed a bike. Uh, Teaching the doctors there how to use medical practices in the first ultrasound in Belize. In fact, I have a good friend of mine who uh, shared recently that his trips to Belize have not only uninsulated him from his own life, but have really prompted him to create a, a lifestyle of helping other people be impacted by the poor around them. In fact, uh, he came back from one of our mission trips and he said in his office at the hospital, he's got a picture of Belize. So every day as he walks into his office, he's just reminded of the worldwide vision God has for helping those in need as he's gone down year after year after year and used his medical skills to help people who could never afford the kind of medical practice that they're getting. In fact, his hospital now uses that opportunity that he's had through Horizon for many years as a selling point for recruiting new doctors and anesthesiologists. That Hey, we offer an opportunity to have a a missional experience, a, a global serving opportunity. 
And so it's, it's, it's grown far beyond Horizon's initial vision to now a local hospital is using the opportunity of, of showing students coming in, hey, this is an opportunity to really help and do work that matters. And the work we do here in Cincinnati matters as a hospital, but even more so, you can have the opportunity to help people who could never afford the kind of services we're offering together. So how about you? Are there ways you need to intentionally step out? Going down to City Gospel, maybe, once a month with our team, grabbing a blue bag, maybe going on a mission trip this year. What are some ways that God might prompt you to uh, come face-to-face with some needs that God may have you pray about and be prompted to serve? But there's a third learning, and the third learning is most important because rather than being shamed or guilted into giving or caring for the poor, the real learning to motivate us to care for the poor and the needy is to learn the ninth degree, the nth degree of God's love for us. It's actually why in my book several years ago I was so uh, warning about kind of social justice as a term. It's because it ends up kind of shaming you in, guilting you in, condemning you into giving, which is never God's desire. He loves a cheerful giver. And even in this passage, filled with like some pretty tough challenges, God says, I really want you to learn that what motivates you to give to others is seeing how much I've given to you, how much I love you, how much I've done for you. And this is like in the Old Testament, God, right? Look how he says it. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them. I gave you this land, the Canaanites. I I destroyed all the people in the land for you. Back when Joshua brought you in, whose height was like the height of cedars. Remember the giants? And he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you out of Egypt. And I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. Do you remember what I've done for you? Man, I brought you out of Egypt. I got you across the Red Sea. I provided manna for you and water for you and 10 commandments for you and a worship tabernacle for you. I taught you how to live. You remember that? You remember how much I loved you, how much I've done for you? I love you to the nth degree. You need to learn that again. You need to experience that again. You need to realize that again. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, to, to give you leadership, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. And Nazarite was somebody who took a vow not to, not to touch dead stuff, not to drink alcohol, not to cut their hair. Think Samson, for example. I brought up leaders. Is it not so, O children of Israel, says the Lord? But how did you respond to my love and my provision and my gifts? Well, you told the Nazarites who committed not to drink wine, you told them to drink wine. Hello? You told your prophets saying do not prophesy don't tell us what God has to say about this hello behold I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down therefore flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not strengthen his power nor shall the mighty deliver himself he shall not stand who handles the bow the swift of the foot shall not escape nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself Guys, you can't deliver yourself. Your strength's gonna be gone if you're not depending on me. If you're not learning the nth degree of my love and depending on me, you're gonna miss out. And it's gonna lead to defeat. The most courageous man you think you have of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord, because you're not depending on me. 
think that's probably the most important thing that we hear in this passage is that where we look back to the cross as God's generosity to us, that Jesus through his, though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we would become rich. In those days, he was pointing back to the original Passover as an example of Jesus delivering, God delivering, the Passover, him providing, that God's generosity to you should motivate you to love him, to trust him, and to be generous to others. So how can you and I do that? How can we let the nth degree of God's love motivate us to be generous to other people? To learn that the nth degree of God's love motivates me to to love and to care for other people for what they've done. It motivates me to uninsulate myself from my life and say, God, how can I be generous to others the way you've been generous to me? It's what we're about as a church. I mean, the reason we do so many different ways to connect people, right? Small groups. Many churches try and do maybe an explore service, but they don't have the time or energy to do an equipping service. Some churches do an equipping service, but they don't have the resources or vision to do an exploring service. We may be the only church in the country who's attempting to do the specific design we have. But why? Because we believe in the nth degree of God's love. God loves Christians with all of our faults, and he loves those who don't believe in him. And so we pour our time, we pour our money, we pour our resources into that. Uh, during this last year, we found ways to, to pour it into so many different ways. You know, we're, we've got a tense for doing small groups and doing services, finding different ways to do children's ministry during the COVID, finding ways to have online services and, and then live stream and using our atrium while we're at 25% capacity because we are so motivated by the nth degree of God's love for each person, we want to show how we can be generous to others the way God's been to us. And maybe during this year, you've been blessed. God's been giving you some warnings or God's been giving you some challenges, but God's been growing you or filling you up with joy. I would just pray that you might respond to God by praying about ways he might want you to give. Maybe that again is going downtown and Maybe it's going on a mission experience, a global serving opportunity. But maybe it's giving to our church. Maybe you're saying, Chad, I believe in what we're doing. Man, we are motivated. And I'm more motivated than I ever have been, you might say, because of being in verse-by-verse Bible study and and watching it on my TV or coming to services and seeing all the ways in which the church is trying to create environments for people to grow. So can I ask you this? Would you pray and ask God what he might prompt you to do to financially give to be part of what God's doing? Because it's pretty amazing. We uh, just finished some analytics, and the analytics show just how many people are viewing and watching our services. In fact, if you look at a map, it's all over the map. P 